0: President-elect Donald Trump isn't the traditional conservative a lot of Republicans in and out of office were hoping for, but that hasn't stopped the House Freedom Caucus from presenting him with a long list of suggestions. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, I'll talk with Arizona's 6th District Congressman David Schweikert, a co-founder of the Freedom Caucus. Schweikert's focus is often on deficit reduction. Does he think he'll find a willing partner in Trump? And what about Trump's push for infrastructure funding? Plus, Arizona Republic and AZ Central columnist Karina Bland has a special way of boiling issues down to the personal level. I'll ask her about how she sees the winter holidays. Also, how did some of the most popular music in the rock and roll era come about? Mark Myers explores 45 well-known tunes in his new book, Anatomy of a Song. I'll talk with Myers about Grace Slick, The Doors, and The Beatles, among others. And the Cardinals are officially out of playoff contention. I'll talk with reporter Kent Summers about how it all went wrong. Here and Now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, how did some of the most popular music in the rock and roll era come about? Mark Myers explores 45 well-known tunes in his new book, Anatomy of a Song. I'll talk with Myers about Grace Slick, The Doors, and The Beatles, among others. Plus, the Arizona Cardinals had great expectations before this season with hopes of making the Super Bowl. Now 14 games into the 16-game season, the team has already been eliminated from playoff contention. I'll check in with Kent Summers, who covers the Cardinals for the Arizona Republican A.C. Central. He's also the author of the book, 100 Things Cardinals Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. We start today's program with Republican Arizona Congressman David Schweikert, who represents the state's 6th district. Recently on Here and Now, I spoke with Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego about his concerns about the incoming Trump administration. And this morning, we'll get Schweikart's perspectives. He's a co-founder of the House Freedom Caucus, and he easily won re-election last month. He's here with his 14-month-old daughter, Olivia, whom you may hear on occasion in the background. Congressman, as a member of the House Freedom Caucus, are you looking forward to working with the president-elect? And what issues do you think you can connect on, and which of those could be problematic? Look, um, the House Freedom Caucus...
1: Uh, in some ways, I think there's been a lot of marginal to bad information. It was substantially an organization that was put together for reform. How do you as a conservative have—those are, are of us who are more free market, you know, bordering on conservative libertarian—have access to the floor of the House to offer amendments? Remember conversations we had in the past is we were functionally frozen out, but so were the most liberal members of Congress. So were the, you know, freshmen were frozen out. So in many ways, the reforms we fought for were a lot more than just, hey, there's this group of 40 conservatives. It was a more egalitarian, give us access to legislate and be part of the process. Mm -hmm. Now the House Freedom Caucus is going to have to step up. And no longer being sort of the blocking minority within the majority, and start showing up with robust, intellectually credible pieces of legislation. No more talking. Right. So, if you're concerned about um, the collapse of the trust funds, you know whether it be Medicare, whether it be Social Security, show up with solutions. Um, many of us who've been looking for market data solutions for environmental protection? Are we able to show up with pieces of legislation and say, here's our reforms, hear us?
0: Is it fair to call you a deficit hawk? Oh, yeah. Okay. So 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 let me ask specifically then about the infrastructure situation, because I don't know what percentage of people in Congress agree that infrastructure is a concern, but many members of Congress are concerned that that would also lead to a lot of spending when we're already in a major deficit. Do you expect to, to butt heads at all with the president or his cabinet over that, if he sees that as a job growth mechanism. Well,
1: look, uh, the job growth mechanism is sort of a classic Keynesian approach, and you know we actually have now several years of great data to look at, you know, the stimulus and other things, and and what happened in those cycles. And and I know there'll be people writing their PhD thesis on why didn't it work? Why didn't the numbers match what the predictions? Um, my approach, and one of the things we've been working on is. How do I fund infrastructure that's required, that's important for economic growth, and do it in a fashion where I've used assets, streams of income, even though I'm going to probably have to bond them so I get the spike of money, instead of going into deficit spending? And you know, some of this is going to mean having to have discussions about um, natural gas extraction on public lands. Mm-hmm. Could I take part of that lease value if it's a 20-year lease? and bond it and use those dollars for infrastructure. So in some ways part of it is a really a debate of how do I fund it, how do I build a financing model mm-hmm. and build a what we would refer to as a capital stack that doesn't um, functionally
0: blow up the deficit. So there's the the question which is more philosophical which is do you have optimism that that will be a priority? And I ask it because there was talk when President George W. Bush was in office that spending with Republicans controlling both houses for a short time, that spending went up, mm-hmm. as as Republicans would say Democrats would do. So are you concerned this could be the same pattern this time?
1: Very much so. And please understand, if you actually look at a couple of the top advisors um, in the Trump transition team, um, they're much more almost classical Keynesians in their view of the world. So th- this has been one of the fascinating, um, you know, look, it's hard-winning and losing in the emotions that could have come up and down and then the letdowns and sometimes the disappointments. But some of the crazy things I've read in the press of, the, uh, of Donald Trump, I need you to take a look at the appointments that are there. I'll use Mick Mulvaney for OMB, one of the, the most powerful positions in all of government. People don't realize they are the ultimate gatekeeper yeah. from spending to rules and regs. Mick Mulvaney is a deficit hawk, he's brilliant, he's just incredibly smart. He's also very creative. He He's technically, I won't say he's like, he, he's not a techno-utopian where he thinks technology solves everything, that's more me. Um, but he, But even right now, just as we've been talking, he just texted me about the calculations on different asset classes that we hold in the federal government that could be either pledged or bonded to actually finance part of that infrastructure.
0: So these ideas have a home in some of the people getting appointed. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix with Arizona 6th District Congressman David Schweikert and family. You may have heard Olivia, his young daughter, in the background. Yes, I, we, you, you're actually very bold. Um. So, Congressman, let's look at some of the ideas that you are specifically focused on. Because I'm earlier this week, Washington Post published a list uh, based on what the House Freedom Caucus, some of the priorities that they might have for a Trump administration. Environment came up. But I'm wondering, when you think about the environment, how does that manifest itself to still have the protections that a pretty good percentage of this country would like, while also realizing that there are some regulations that could go away? How how does that balance itself? Well, well, there's
1: been a frustrating fixation on all the regulations. And how do I turn the model upside down and saying, the fixation has to be, how do I have clean air for my community? And this is true with sound and water and soil, everything else. And I am a huge fan of, of a concept that says the way we regulate business, uh, point source admitters today, uh, functionally having them fill out lots and lots of pieces of paper, you know, quarterly, annually, major audits annually, filling up file cabinets full of paper. Do file cabinets full of paper make the air quality better in Maricopa County? And I know that's an absurd way to say it, but that's sort of the regulatory model we have. It's almost sort of a 1930s model. We're all walking around with these supercomputers in our pocket, you know, the smartphones. And there's a new category of sensors that are starting to come onto the market now. Some do volatile organics. Some do CO2. Some do ozone. Some do PM10 particulates. How about the concept that for Maricopa County, we try to find a thousand or a couple thousand of our friends and neighbors who are out in the community every day with the sensor attached to their phone, let's put up the GIS map and let's crowdsource mm. what's happening in our air quality uh, marketplaces, we'll call it. And if we find a sin, we go directly to the point source and fix it right then. Think of the change in the lag time between something that's bad going into our environment and the ability to show up and fix it, so instead of a world right now where we fill up file cabinets and we have a you know we have a handful of fixed um, sensors that sort of give you a regional number, um, a crowdsource model, you can get down to the exact spot that the sin is happening. Is that conservative? Is that liberal? It's sort of um, marketplace crowdsourcing. Mm-hmm. Um, it hits citizen science and the incentive for a community to adopt it is our businesses could do dramatically less paperwork and you only catch the sinners. And those that are good actors in your community um, get the benefit of being left alone.
0: Now this is an exaggeration, but a lot of people saw images earlier this week from Beijing. And I don't think anyone is saying any U.S. city is going to be like that. But they're thinking, well, that's a place that's growing. Its economy is growing. Mm-hmm. And they have decided that clean air regulation isn't that important. Do you have any fears, though, that, that it's going to move closer to that direction? Do do people that you may disagree with on most issues have any point to say, well, maybe we're all overregulated, but please don't underregulate us either?
1: Yeah, it, and, and I think actually there becomes the philosophical um, wedge, and that is the goal's clean air. It's not another regulation. It's not another handful of lawyers and engineers filling out paperwork and waiting to see if there's a mistake so we can go find the paperwork and sue you. It's how do I keep my air clean and keep it clean all the time, hmm. not have a delay of finding out saying, hey, for six weeks, I had this horrible admitter in this part of my community. I want to catch it the moment it happens. And that's why I believe actually the crowdsourcing of of environmental data. We all use things like weather underground mm-hmm. to actually even study down to our microclimates in, within the valley. Why wouldn't that same sort of modeling work? If I could get you know, a 1,000 people with sensors traveling around, that's, and, and they're providing me a data point every five minutes, you functionally have millions of data points a week.
0: I think it's fair to say you're a policy wonk. And I don't know that the average person thinks that there are a lot of policy wonks in Congress. I think they think you may be in the distinct minority.
1: There's a reason I sometimes get get myself in trouble when you
0: run down and say, there's a different way to do it. And then you realize they have no idea what you just explained. So the House Freedom Caucus, at least at the end, not big fans of John Boehner. How do you feel about Paul Ryan? Do you think he's going to hear you but also be someone you can work with? I have had more
1: success with Speaker Ryan in the last year of at least having an audience some of the ideas mm-hmm. I have a fixation on blockchain and smart contracts and the efficiencies that can bring to the economy but also this crazy concept that we're working on the legislation mm-hmm. that every American should own their own data and in a societal contract you lease parts of it to government to be able to sort of see you know so if you're you're getting a special pass at the TSA are your IRS records or you want a security clearance, The ability to log in and say, I can see everyone in government who's looked at me. And in a blockchain-type environment, I can make it incredibly secure and so incredibly safe. And I think there's some ways like that because, believe it or not, within that model, I can remove tremendous amount of fraud at the IRS, um, tremendous amounts of fraud in other functions of government. So there are these technologies that have rolled out around us the last few years. And it's been heartbreaking frustrating to try to find audiences, whether it be the current administration or a lot of my brothers and sisters in Congress. And this is where I have some new optimism, is some of the people, like the Mick Mulvaney's of the world who are moving into the administration, are very open to solutions that are not typical partisan pablum.
0: Arizona's sixth district congressman, David Schweikers. Merry Christmas, happy holidays. Thanks for being here.
1: You're very and very, you're very kind. Thank you for letting me bring my little person in. Um, you know, come January, um, the schedule for the next six months is a lot of time in D.C. Um, you know, and a lot of responsibility to get work done. And so I'm grabbing every
0: second I can with my little girl. And still to come on here and now, we'll get Chris Hurstam's take on the state of the Democratic Party in Arizona and the U.S., and then later this hour, Karina Bland of the Arizona Republic. Stay with us.
2: KJZZ is supported by Peoria Subaru celebrating the Share the Love event. Subaru will donate to a purchaser or lessee selected national or hometown charity. See Subaru.com slash share for details or PeoriaSubaru.com.
3: You're listening to Here and Now on KJZZ. Be with us today at 1 for BBC News Hour. While well, taking a look at some traffic on the valley freeways right now, on the Loop 303 out in the West Valley, the northbound exit ramp has a crash, but the ramp is open. On I-10, the eastbound exit at Wild Horse Pass Road is closed. That's also due to an accident there. Around the state right now, cloudy skies, 47 degrees in Flagstaff. It's 48 in Prescott, raining and 63 in Casa Grande, cloudy in 62 in Tucson, and it's 66 degrees. In Yuma. Well, become a KJZZ business member and get connected with an audience that values public radio for balanced, factual information. Help keep this community resource strong with a philanthropic donation to the KJZZ business member program. You can learn more at businessmember.kjzz.org or call 480 774 8274. Right now in Phoenix, with 45% relative humidity, we have cloudy skies and 64 degrees at 1121.
0: This is KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. We just heard from Congressman David Schweikert about his expectations for 2017 in Washington and for President-elect Donald Trump. But what should Democrats in Arizona and across the country be preparing themselves for, and how difficult will it be for them to have an impact? With me for a few minutes, for a few minutes rather, is political analyst Chris Hurston, Chris, good morning. Good morning. Okay, so what is the state of the Democratic Party nationally right now? Considering that Hillary Clinton won the election by 3 million votes but did not win the Electoral College, should they be wringing their hands right now? Well, for the last
4: month, um, I think the Democratic um, members were shocked. They were stunned, and then they became depressed. Um, Now, I think after about six weeks, uh, Democrats are petrified. Uh, they are petrified about Donald Trump in a way that they were not scared about President Ronald Reagan or George W. Bush as they formed their administration um and and the Trump transition period has not made Democrats feel any less scared um, than the thought of of a trump presidency um, they um really are going to have to uh, claw their way back the Democrats. Uh, into the majority, uh, and they're going to have to be introspective, and they're going to have to plan on the future, and they're going to have to recruit good candidates both at the national and the state level and provide those candidates with the proper training, support, and basic campaign infrastructure if they are going to be successful at clawing their way back to the majority.
0: Republicans have been accused of being the party of no throughout President Obama's administration. Do you think Democrats are going to have to try that? And are there enough Republicans that they could connect with on certain issues to block some legislation or block some action by President Trump?
4: You're correct. Uh, I think the Democrats now losing the presidency, not winning the Senate. They're down 52 to 48 in the Senate, U.S. Senate, and and the House is hopeless. They're so far behind there. The Democrats are going to have to now uh, really go into a minority stage where their only hope uh, is to pick off three Republican U.S. senators on selected issues – such as repeal and replacing Obamacare and immigration and on foreign affairs matters. Um, There There's several Republicans that are available to pick off on selected issues. Our own Senator John McCain, uh, to a lesser extent uh, Senator Flake. In particular, Susan Collins of Maine is very, very centrist. Uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Rob Portman of, of Ohio, Rand Paul has libertarian Tendencies and and Dean Heller of Nevada, a Republican senator who uh, is going to have to run for re election in 18 in a state that was carried by Hillary Clinton. So, those are all possibilities for pickoffs by, by uh, the Democrats on selected issues. Um, but by and large, the Democrats are going to uh, be very frustrated. They're going to have to sit back and wait for national scandals and poor, inevitable poor policy decisions um, to manifest themselves to to score points in upcoming elections. And here in Arizona, uh, the Democrats are pros at being in the minority because they have been for a couple of decades. And uh, what they need to do and they will always continue to do is look for uh, bipartisan opportunities, particularly on K-12 funding and whether we continue uh, tax decreases every single year when we don't have enough funding for K-12 and badly needed social services in our state. Um, and, and those Democrats will be there to provide bipartisan votes uh, for the governor or for Republican leadership if they need them.
0: Chris, heading back to Washington briefly, what do you think of Arizona's delegation as it relates to the Democrats specifically? Ruben Gallego has been very outspoken in uh, knocking down Donald Trump, or at least attempting to. We've not heard much from Kirsten Sinema. And those of us who are cynics might think that's because she wants to position herself as a centrist to run against perhaps Senator Flake or in the future, Senator McCain. Um, Does that limit her influence and power, or does it in fact increase it as we see the makeup of the Senate and the House right now?
4: I don't think it really. Cinema's a, a desire to be centrist on many issues and look nonpartisan is what I think she's trying to do, in a in a district that is that is pretty centrist, frankly, um, and just leans Democrat, frankly, uh, when you look at the election returns. Um, I think Cinema's gearing up for running for the U.S. Senate someday in the future, uh, whether it be Flake or McCain's seat in six years, uh, and and trying to win a general election. Uh, and and having to be a more centrist Democrat uh, to do so. I don't think, I mean, the House is so overwhelmingly Republican and stayed the same uh, that, that Trump is going to impact uh, her voting. She'll still pick and choose uh, issues and, and appear more centrist. The important thing to remember, though, is both Sinema and Gallego, who is more of a traditional progressive and, a, and can afford to be so in his very safe Democratic district, both of them, opposed Nancy Pelosi's selection as the minority leader in the House. That was extremely significant. Uh, and um, that sort of unites them in, 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 in the fact that they are now sort of branded as more independent from the, the Democratic caucus in the House. And frankly, as an Arizona Democrat now, that, that was appealing to me. I was pleased to see both Gallego and Sinema uh, differentiate themselves from Nancy Pelosi. I think change is necessary within the Democratic Party at the federal level.
0: And Chris, let's finish by talking about the Arizona Democrats at the state level. We look back to 2014, which is when statewide offices were up, and the Democrats had a good slate of candidates, and yet they all lost. Do you think anything that happened in 2016 indicates there's momentum for Arizona Democrats going forward? And on top of that, do you expect any of the people who ran and lost in 2014 to run again in 2018?
4: Well, the, the the momentum for the Democrats from looking at the 2016 race is the fact that Hillary Clinton only lost by three points. Here in Arizona that, um, you know, there were there were certainly um, key victories in the legislature, particularly in the Senate, in some some competitive uh, districts that had heretofore been Republican. Um, So so there is it's the demographic change that's inevitable here in Arizona that is going to slowly but surely tilt Arizona first to be a purple state which were almost there, and then eventually to be a blue state probably a decade from now. Um, as for So that's really the, the, the positive for the Democratic Party in Arizona. The inevitable demographic change is going to assist them uh, down the road. As for the bench of candidates, it's not particularly strong, but there's still some key figures. Um, you've got Mayor Greg Stanton of Phoenix. You've got uh, David Garcia, who ran a, a good race for superintendent of public instruction, they're both looking at potential statewide offices. Um, I think Bill Mundell ran a very strong race for the Corporation Commission. He only lost by something – the third seat of the commission by, I think, 0.6 percent uh, and, and, and got over a million votes Statewide, so here's somebody now that has some name ID statewide, and I think Mundale has a future. Um, uh, Rebecca Rios, the minority leader in the, in the State House uh, Democrat, I think's got a, a good future if she wants to pull the trigger and run for a higher office. And when you look backwards, um, I think you, you should not uh, overlook Felicia Rodolini, who's a, a potential attractive candidate for the Democrats. So there, and then you have Steve Farley, the uh, Senate Minority uh, Leader on or a minority whip, a majority, minority leader, I think, under Katie Hobbs in the Senate from Tucson that wants to run for governor. So you do have some names um, that I think will, will be available to run for statewide offices. But we're probably still an election or two away from Democrats being tremendously competitive for statewide offices. In, in off-presidential election years, the turnout goes down, and that always benefits Republicans.
0: Political analyst Chris Hurstam. Chris, happy holidays, and thanks as always.
4: Same to you. Happy holidays to everyone.
0: listening to KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. The winter holiday season can be fun or sad or stressful or all of those rolled into one. Spending time with family, not spending time with family, enjoying food but worrying about eating too much, all of us have experienced at least some of that. Karina Bland, my so-called midlife columnist for the Arizona Republic and AC Central, writes about the holidays and a lot of other things, and she's with me now to help us get ready for the final lead-up to the winter festivities. Welcome, Karina. Good morning. So I want to ask you, though, about one of your most recent columns, which is about um, foster adoption. You had a couple of moms. and But I want to ask you, though, about the, the process that goes into this, because a lot of what you write is so personal and so intimate to the people you talk to. How are you able to be present in that. Like you're talking to someone as a human being, but also in the back of your mind thinking, okay, I want to go back to that because that's going to work really well in the column.
2: Right. It's 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 interesting. You have kind of like these really um, personal conversations, but there's a notebook in your hand. So, you know, it's always very clear, like, this is what we're doing. Because you can't write kind of these stories where people really unload their soul to you and and, and and tell you sort of their most intimate thoughts and how and how they got to where, they're, where they are without kind of creating a bond. You know, like one of my uh, the photographers I work with, Mark Henley, always says to me, how come we're always hugging people when we leave? You know, because you do, you know, journalists really try, they talk about like staying objective, and you can be objective, but like still sort of feel what the people are experiencing. And that's, and I always tell when I talk to journalism students, I always tell them that if you're not feeling it, then you're not going to, your reader's not going to feel it when you write it. So it's okay to feel it. But, yeah, it is, it's tough too, though.
0: Well, that's what makes you a real storyteller. And I think, um, and the holidays, of course, are full of stories. As I said, some are positive, some are not so much, some are heavy for all of us. Um, You've written a lot about your son over the years. Now, as he's gotten older, how has that affected how you look at the holidays?
2: Oh, it's interesting. I say what she loves when I write about. I'm not really. But um okay. you know, it's it's funny because, you know, the the holidays have changed. You know, when you're a kid, Christmas is really fun. And then when you have kids, it gets fun again. And, you know, my kid is now 17. And this is his last Christmas, really, like next Christmas he'll be coming home from college. And to be honest, he's just not that much fun anymore. (laughs) You know, he's not, he's, you know, I mean, we gave up some traditions. Like, you know, we're not putting cookies out for Santa anymore. But, you know, he doesn't want to go look at Christmas lights anymore. And he's not interested in even jumping on the roof to put up decorations. Doesn't thrill him anymore. He'll do it if I make him. But, you know, it does change the dynamic of that. So it has actually, though, I realize, made it a lot less stressful because it's not so overwhelming. There's no Christmas concert. There's no visit to Santa. There's no gingerbread house building. And so it's given me a little bit more time to not be so crazy.
0: Well, how much of life is not about like mixed feelings? I mean, it seems like everything, even the things we love the most, there's still a little bit of the thing. Well, this we could end up having an argument with some family members. I mean, that we didn't plan on. So I almost feel like that sounds like the same thing. Like you you want to see him grow up and be a man, mm-hmm. but you miss some of the fun stuff. And then you also think, oh, well, that's kind of off my shoulders now.
2: Right, exactly. I always tell him that I, I should rent, like, a nine-year-old girl that would like me instead of him. <laughs> um, you know, but there are some things, like some traditions I still just insist. You know, pajamas on Christmas Eve, new pajamas on Christmas Eve, playing games. You know, I always ask for a game for Christmas. Um, and so in the rare times that, that Sawyer says, oh, I'm bored, it's like, oh, you said the wrong words because now come play zombieopoly with your mother, you know. So, so you know, I try to kind of maintain those things things. But, um, you know, we have a couple of foster kids in our family, uh, including a four-year-old who calls me ballerina because she can't say Karina and no one's ever mistaken me for a ballerina before. And ballerina is
0: easier to say than Karina.
2: I guess so. But, you know, just the idea, like, look at me, I'm not a ballerina. And so, you know, we're kind of focusing more, you know, on them this Christmas. I think as long as you have a couple kids around, I think, you know, Christmas can still be a lot of fun. And the,
0: the fun is what we should be thinking about. But I also feel like is there is there just natural pressure that comes from the winter holidays? And we do we thrust that upon ourselves? And people talk about the commercialization, and, of course, people worry about that as well. But do we put it on ourselves, too, to feel like, oh, my gosh, uh, December 25th, or if you celebrate Hanukkah, whatever it may be, oh, my gosh, we need to build up to this whole thing. Does it add that stress that really is unnecessary?
2: Yeah. I, no, I think that's why we have, like, this real love-hate. Relationship, like you know, like I like all the 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 trappings of Christmas. I like you know ribbons and bows and and getting together with family. But I hate that pressure, right? You know, you look in the magazines or or you know on Facebook, like you're looking at people's pictures on Facebook, and you're like, wow, we didn't do that this year. You know, it, everyone else's holiday looks so much cooler than yours. You know, and mine usually ends up you know with tamales stuffed in the couch cushions, and you know it, it, they're kind of. Um, you know, But what, what I've lear- realized is that we kind of put that pressure on ourselves. And what I realize is that if you invite over the people that you care about, which is what I do over Christmas Eve, and you have enough food and you have enough booze, like everyone has a great time. And, you know, they come back every year, so it can't be that bad. And I think that if we just have to kind of learn to let go of that a little bit yeah. um, and not try to make everything so perfect.
0: Well, we are who we are, right? I mean, mm-hmm. about tamale, I mean, if you're a tamale on the couch kind of person, then that's your thing, right?
5: Right,
2: exactly.
0: So what's your take on Santa Claus? <laughs> Do you think that uh, parents? There's, I guess, there's been a big thing recently about whether, like, more parents want to be enlightened and not actually tell their kids that there's a Santa Claus. That right. why shouldn't mom and dad get credit for all this stuff? What, what's your
2: take on yeah. that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I re- I remember when Sawyer was about eight when he came to me and said, you know, there's, there's always that one kid at school that tells your kid everything um, that you don't want him to know, and you know, he said this kid had told him that there was no Santa Claus and that he said it was, you know, your parents, and so I said to him, you know, do you want to believe? And he nodded and he said, yeah, I want to believe. And I said, OK, then we're going to believe because, like, we believe in, you know, we believe in the force, you know, and, and Yoda. We believe in Harry Potter and wizards. You know, uh, You know, we we believe in all of these things that kind of make childhood fun, you know. And I think he's realized ever since then, obviously, that, you know, it wasn't. You know, it, it was only going to be what we made it. And, you know, then as he got older and, and was too cool for, for Santa, I said, well, if you don't believe, you don't receive. So, you know, you, I kind of kept that whole thing um, going for as long as I possibly could. But, but kids get it. You know, just like Harry Potter and Yoda, they know they know that it's fun and it can be um, a part of what they believe without really being real. So,
0: Do you have a favorite holiday song or Christmas carol?
2: You know, I don't, although I can tell you that uh, – so on Christmas Eve, I, I make everyone come over and, and, and go Christmas carol. And we did it one year for a woman down the street who was who was um, bedridden, and she loved it. You know, we sang. We were terrible. And, you know, she she cried, and we all cried, and it was wonderful. So we've done it every year. And, and to be honest, like, the neighbors don't even open their doors when they hear us coming because we're that terrible. Um, so, you know, we kind of stick with the classics, the ones that everyone can sing. Jingle bells, you know, God rest you Mary gentlemen – yeah.
0: So a lot of people have a favorite Christmas movie and, mm-hmm. and some channels play Christmas Story over and over again. Do you have a favorite there?
2: Yeah, well a Christmas story is of course number one. Like you just have to love that movie. Um, but my second favorite and I've already watched it twice this season so far is Love Actually.
0: Wow. Okay. Have you seen it? I have. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely. And and that's I a d- different kind of Christmas movie. Yeah, yeah, it's a
2: different kind of Christmas movie. And um, what I and I had two friends that hadn't seen it, so I, you know I got to introduce them to it. But you know what I love about that movie is that it's really about what we're talking about about family and how it can be that simple if we just are with the people that we care about.
0: So, person you care about is going to go to college pretty soon. Yeah. And as you said before, maybe he's not as excited about being in so many columns. If you could write about just him, would you do that?
2: No, he's not okay. that interesting. I don't <laughs> even like writing about just me. I'm not that interesting. Um, it's one of those things that, you know, it's it's actually harder for me to write the column uh, to kind of... Um, you know, to kind of sift through my own life for material than it is to write other people's stories. Like that, to me, is easier. And, you know, as he's gotten older, the column has kind of shifted a little bit. Like you do see more stories about people in the community, more stories um, about uh, kind of current event thing and less about him. Uh, you know, the poor kid will probably never escape always being in the columns. But, um, but. know, uh, yeah, I think that as he kind of moves on with his life, it'll it'll become more about me and how I cope with that.
0: Well, yeah, are you looking forward to that as a creative person?
2: You know, it's really interesting. He's talking about you know going away to college and and living on campus, and and I thought, oh, I don't know if I want him to leave. And then I realized, you know, I am really ready for him to go. Like I'd like to try that and see because I and I think as parents, like if you get to that point that you're ready to kind of see your kid go off, that you've done you you've done a good job. I'll miss him. I'll be glad to see him when he comes back. Yeah. But I think we're both ready for that. You know, I've been traveling a lot more this year, and I'm looking forward to kind of the, the things that I'll do uh, when he's gone. But then I did realize the other day that the dog that that I got for him when he was nine, because every boy should have a dog, will be home with me still. So, you know.
0: Karina Bland is the, my so-called midlife columnist for the Arizona Republic and AC Central. Happy holidays. Thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: And still to come on here, and now we'll look at the anatomy of 45 popular songs from the rock and r era. Stay with us.
2: KJZZ is supported by Virginia G. Piper Charitable Trust, partnering to build community resilience. Learn more at pipertrust.org resilience.
3: This is KJZZ's Here and Now at 91.5 FM. If you're listening at KJZZ.org or on our mobile app, thanks very much for joining us. Taking a look at valley traffic right now, I-10 eastbound at Wild Horse Pass Road. The exit there is blocked due to a crash, uh, closed actually due to a crash. On the Loop 303 over in the West Valley, there's a crash on the Bell Road exit, but that exit is Open. Well, the Valley forecast calling for plenty of clouds over the next several days. We've got a decent chance for some rain this afternoon and a better chance for this evening, a high today of 71 degrees and down to 66 for tomorrow. NPR's Here and Now starts at noon. Today we'll hear about the unknown poetry of Johnny Cash. His lyrics have been collected in a new book. And KJZZ's Will Stone will tell us how many conservatives in Arizona see solar energy as a way to protect their individual freedom and save money. Here and Now from Boston is coming up at 12 on KJZZ. Cloudy skies, 66 degrees in Phoenix at 1142.
0: You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The impact of rock and R&B music from the 1950s on is hard to measure. There was Motown, the British Invasion... Folk, psychedelia, heavy metal. How do you narrow all of that down to 45 songs? That was Mark Myers' task as he compiled the new book, Anatomy of a Song, the oral history of 45 iconic hits that changed rock, R&B, and pop. The collection begins in 1952 with Laudy Miss Claudie and closes with 1991's Losing My Religion by R.E.M. And Mark Myers is with me for a few minutes to talk about Anatomy of a Song. Mark, do these 45 songs continue to have an impact on music and artists today?
5: Yeah, all of these songs influence the music rolling forward, uh, and they continue, to, you know, they, they continue to be in our hearts today for the most part. Uh, even young kids who, who never grew up with this music, it, it's the poetry that's baked in. There's like a hidden artistic message in each of these songs that touches even people who didn't you know happen to buy these when they were kids. But the, the big thing here in terms of their influence, I mean, look at Walk This Way. It's the first merger of rap and hard rock uh, with run DMC and Aerosmith in 1986. Or look at Heart of Glass with 1978 with Blondie. It's the first merger of disco and punk. So all of these songs, Street Fighting Man, all of these songs in the book have an influence on the music rolling forward.
0: Were you surprised at all by the thoughtfulness of these songwriters? Because it, it, at least the people you included in this book had really given a lot of consideration to what made these songs come together for them
5: yeah the you know what people what we too often think of with these songs with these 45s is that it's just throwaway junk it's just pop nonsense it's cotton candy you don't that, there's no nutrition in there but it turns out when you talked to when i spoke with these guys and we got deep and we got into confessional that they that they that there's much more there's so much artistry and there's so much poetry. I mean, these guys talked about these songs, whether it was Mick Jagger or Keith Richards or Stevie Wonder or Rod Stewart, no matter who it was, they talked about the songs that I asked them about as if they were talking about one of their own children. Enormous depth and enormous passion on their part.
0: One of the people who kind of surprised me, not because she was so outspoken and glib, but just the way she talked about White Rabbit was Grace Slick. You got so much good stuff out of her. Can you talk a little bit about the origins and the conversation you had with her?
5: Yeah, Grace Slick, I mean, you know, she's really the first female electric rock singer. There's enormous urgency in her voice. There's a commanding sound. And it's, there's a, there's a, there's a feminine, feminism built into that sound that is continues today. I mean, Pink, for example, I and mean, that's a direct descendant of Grace Slick's sound. And White Rabbit was really a song that Grace told me she wrote to chastise adults who were sitting around drinking and, and you know letting their kids have it for, for doing drugs now I you know I don't do drugs I never did drugs you know so to me drugs is neither here nor there but from an artistic point of view this is what she was arguing that, that you know White Rabbit was sort of a play off of Alice in Wonderland and Grace's argument was that all of these stories that she was read as a kid had drugs in them whether it's Peter Pan's Fairy Dust or the Poppy Field and the Wizard of Oz where they all fall down asleep or going down the hole by Alice to find you know, the white rabbit, and she's taking, drinking things and eating things and tall and small. So her argument was that, you know, this notion of, of going off on your own to, to experiment was something that she had learned as a kid thanks to adults reading her stories.
0: There's even a great quote which you also use on the book jacket which where she says White Rabbit is a very good song I'm not a genius but I don't suck my only complaint is the lyrics could have been stronger more people should have been annoyed and that I think that takes into account what is a, what is a big part of the chapter of that book another one I find really intriguing was what you wrote about Light My Fire by the Doors in a couple of uh, aspects of it One is the different influences uh, that the different artists in the group came up with for that song, and also how they actually preferred, Jim Morrison at least, preferred the two-minute and 52-second single to the seven-minute version that most of us are so familiar with.
5: Jim Morrison, here's the weird stuff about this song. It's like six weird things, but I'll tell you just a few weird things. Um, The opening there is a Bach fugue that uh, Ray Manzarek... Um, had practice as a kid. He built that off of that. Then you've got Jim Morrison, you know, that great voice of his, well, it turns out he was listening to Strangers in the, the Strangers in the Night album that entire year, you know, Frank Sinatra's album. Um, uh, uh, Ray Manzarek also borrowed some feel from Blueberry Hill, Fats Domino, uh, Blueberry Hill, but the most, the weirdest thing I think I found is after talking to drummer Jim, uh, excuse me, John Densmore, uh, John, I said to John, I said, gosh, you know, there's something about your drumming that, that makes that Middle that main chorus section that's just so catchy. It's almost like you're you're playing a Latin beat. And he said, you know, I was. It's interesting you should you should pick up on that. He John said he he said Denzmore said he loved Astro Giberto and Stan Getz's Girl from Ipanema, <laughs> loved it. And what you're hearing on there is. He's got a stick across the snare drum, and he's rapping out a bossa nova beat underneath everything on the rim. So the next time you listen to Light My Fire, you'll hear John Densmore playing a bossa nova, almost like a lounge bossa nova, (laughs) underneath Jim Morrison's voice. Isn't that wild?
0: Yeah. Well, there's so much in Anatomy of a Song. that I I don't want to focus on what's not in, but I do have to ask you this question, because we have The Temptations and The Four Tops and The Rolling Stones and Pink Floyd, and I didn't realize... Roger Waters actually even did interviews, so that was fascinating to read as well. But where are the Beatles? Mark, where are the Beatles?
5: Well, you know, here, here we go. I mean— it- I, I, as much, as hard as I tried to get Paul McCartney to do an anatomy with me, his management, you know, his management felt it wasn't, it wasn't a good fit at that particular point in time, that perhaps down the road we would do it. And the same is true with Dylan. I wanted to get Bob Dylan, and I wanted to get Bruce Springsteen. Um, and they just felt, a lot of these guys, they just don't want to look backward. You know, They want to go back in time. Maybe it's superstition that if they talk too much about the past, they'll get locked into the past. Nobody will ever take them seriously going forward. But I am convinced that Paul McCartney is going to listen to this interview, Steve, and he's going to have an epiphany, and he's going to say to himself, you know, i got to call this guy, I've got to call this guy Mark. I've got to do an anatomy of a song with him. You know, it's just so so terrible that he doesn't have anything with me. So I'm convinced that my phone's going to ring one day, and Bob Dylan or, or Bruce Springsteen or Paul McCartney will be on the other end, and they'll do it.
0: Well, Mark, before I let you go in the last minute or so we have left, without putting you on the spot, the Beatles have been so influential, obviously Bob Dylan as well, but let me focus on the Beatles for this one. Is there a song... Either by McCartney or if there's one that you, if you had a chance to talk with John Leonard or George Harrison, is there one of their songs you think would be especially perfect for this?
5: You know, if there's so many. I probably would want to talk with Paul McCartney about Maybe I'm Amazed, and that's, you know, just after he leaves the Beatles, because I believe that that song was written about the Beatles' breakup. And I think so much, so much of his other songs have been covered in endless books and Rolling Stone supplements that, you know, maybe there is nothing new in Yesterday, and maybe there is nothing new in She Loves You, and, you know, it's just a combination of things that made that happen. There's no involved story. But I have a funny feeling that Maybe I'm Amazed um, has, a, has a fascinating emotional story about the breakup and how Paul was feeling and, and how he wrote that song and the poetry and the art and the passion that went into writing that song and what he was trying to say. I think that's the song I'd like to interview him on.
0: Mark Myers is the author of the new book, Anatomy of a Song, the oral history of 45 iconic hits that changed rock, R&B, and pop. And Mark, thank you for the time. Take care.
5: Steve, you're a pro. Thanks so much.
0: You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The Arizona Cardinals were the favorite among many pundits to represent the NFC in the Super Bowl this season. It would have been the next logical step for a team that lost in the NFC championship game last year. Amazon even featured the Cardinals in a series called All or Nothing. And based on the team already being eliminated from playoff contention, this season has definitely been closer to nothing. Kent Summers covers the Cardinals for the Arizona Republic and AZ Central. He's also the author of 100 Things Cardinals Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. And Kent, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. So what the window, we always hear about the window when it comes to sports. Has the window for a championship closed? If you look ahead to 2017, what has to still be in effect for the Cardinals to become a contender again?
6: Wow, that's a that's a great question. Somehow I think they've they've got to sort of get their offensive mojo back. I mean, under Bruce Arians, it was a sort of high-flying team that threw the ball deep and could score from anywhere and lots of points. And and this year they haven't been able to do that. I think, you know, a year from now, they've got to have a healthy quarterback and Carson Palmer come back. It would be helpful if Larry Fitzgerald puts off retirement um, for another year. And they need a a couple of their young, fast receivers, JJ Nelson and and John Brown to, to get healthy and, and to come through for Uh, him. I think, The pieces are in place to to bounce back at least for another year. But after that, I think we could see a a major rebuilding job here.
0: When the Cardinals kind of shocked the world back when Ken Wisenhunt was coach and Kurt Warner was the quarterback and they made the Super Bowl at the time, um, Wisenhunt didn't quite have the same magic that Bruce Arians has. He wasn't quite the character. But has Arians in any way lost his touch uh, or do people put too much positive on the coach and too much negative on the coach?
6: I think probably the latter. I think Bruce Arians still has the touch, although I think he's been very frustrated by this season and especially his inability to fix what went wrong. It's a it's a team that's lost a lot of close games, and in his three previous season, they were noted for you know winning those one score games, for making the play at the end of the game that the dramatic play that that turned things around or that gave them the victory, and that just hasn't come this season I you know you, we, we, we've all analyzed this season ad nauseum but it's also true that you know if they play better special teams in three games just snap the ball and make a kick you know they they win three games and they're in the middle of uh the playoff contention right now so it's a very close league when it comes to talent and, and something like that can can be the difference between playing you know well into January or or making vacation plans
0: so do you think the cynical fan who says, oh, they started believing their own headlines, th- and that affected them, do you think that's uh, that's not true?
6: I think it played a part. I, I, I really do. And I don't know if it was a, a, a conscious thing or if it sort of crept in. And I always go back to their struggles at the beginning of the season. And I kept hearing from players, well, we've proven we can rattle off a lot of wins in a row. I mean, we did it four wins in 13 and five, six in a row and in 15 or in 14 and nine in a row in 15 and and you know this is such a year-to-year league what you did last year means nothing and I kept thinking well this this team the 2016 team hasn't proven they can win more than two in a row and I I think maybe there was a failure to realize that every season is a season unto itself and, and what you did last year doesn't carry over to the next year
0: it's KJZZ's here and now I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix with Kent Summers he covers the Arizona Cardinals for the Arizona Republican A.C. Central. He's also the author of 100 Things Cardinals Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Kent, is Larry Fitzgerald, when you went through all the notes of covering this team for a couple of decades, is he the best Cardinal player you've ever covered?
6: Yes. Yes, there's I, I, there, there's no question. I think uh, Aeneas Williams, the cornerback who is in the Hall of Fame, would be second. But there's, there's no question uh, Fitzgerald is the best. He's... You know He leads the franchise in almost every receiving category. He's third overall in NFL history in number of receptions. He's 10th in yards. He's, I mean, and just has, has been very durable and has made big plays on the biggest stage. I mean, he made a touchdown in the Super Bowl in 2008 that almost won it for him. His play last year in overtime against, uh, against the Packers in the playoff game and advanced them to the next round, so I, I, yeah, I think there's very little question. He's he's the best player, in, certainly in Arizona Cardinal history, and maybe in the history of the organization overall.
0: And what about covering him? Because it seemed like his first several years in the league, he was the guy who didn't really want to be in the locker room and talk to, and then he became sort of a team spokesman in a sense. How has that affected your working relationship with him?
6: Yeah, it was interesting. As you said, early in his career, he was He was congenial, but he certainly didn't want to be a leader on the team and he didn't want to really talk that much to the media and it was It was impossible to get him after games he He showered and dressed often before reporters um, were even allowed into the locker room and and some of us complained to the league actually, which ended up fining him ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars and since then mm-hmm. since then he's in the locker room every day and, or every after every game and is usually the last one to leave we're all waiting on him. And it's been an interesting change. I think people who are Cardinal fans have watched a person grow up. Somebody who was drafted when he was 20 years old is now 33. And, and you've seen, you know, the, the changes, I think he's realized he's had to become a leader on this team that, that other players look up to him, that how he works, how he handles himself, et cetera. And I, it's, it's been uh, it, it, it's been fun and it's been a, a great story to, to cover and to watch.
0: Ken, it seems like this organization in the around three decades or so it's been in the desert, it seems like there's been a lot of characters at head coach, whether it's Buddy Ryan, Danny Green, Dave McGuinness, Bruce Arians now. Have they been interesting to cover or are the larger than life personalities at coach somewhat different? Is it uh, like for fans, it could be a little bit more fun, like when Danny Green made his infamous speech after the Monday night football game, or is that actually harder as, as a guy who covers the team?
6: No, I, I'll never complain about that. I, I started on the beat when when Buddy Ryan was head coach, and I, I felt like I was covering one of the last great characters in the NFL. in a In a day and age when not just NFL coaches, but I think coaches in a lot of sports have found it better just to say say very little um, or you know nothing at all. You know, Bel, Bill Belichick of the Patriots comes to mind. I've I've enjoyed these guys. You never knew what was going to come out of Buddy Ryan's mouth or you never knew, you know, it was it was hard to always follow Denny Green's logic and you know, and Bruce Arians is one of the best sound bites in the league and, and says what he thinks, which is a rarity I think in professional sports today. So no, it's been it's been fun to cover. I you know, I enjoy covering the news story and I enjoy covering people who speak their minds. So I, I will never complain
0: about that. And, Ken, as part of the title of your book, it's uh, things that Cardinals fans, not just they should know, but they should also do before they die. What would you say to a Cardinals fan who never had a chance to watch that team play in Sun Devil Stadium? How different is it in University of Phoenix Stadium?
6: Oh, startlingly <laughs> different. I just—I I think of the Sun Devil Stadium days in the heat, uh, um, just shimmering off those aluminum bleachers, and, and you know, 17,000, 18,000, 20,000 people, in the stands as, as one NFL writer said, he goes, this is the team that, that, that time forgot. It it was like, you weren't covering an NFL team. And, you know, and from the minute they move into the new stadium, they, they sell out, they've sold out every game. So it's, it's dramatically different. And it's dramatically different, you know, seeing them win once in a while, you know, I went through, you know, 10, 15 years on the beat, the first years where, you know, there were plenty of 4 and 12, 6 and 10 seasons, and you felt like you were writing the same story over and over again. So this has been, its it's been a dramatic change. The organization has come a long, long way.
0: Kent Summers covers the Arizona Cardinals for the Arizona Republic and AZ Central, and he's also the author of 100 Things Cardinals Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, Kent, happy holidays, happy new year. Thanks for the time. Great. Steve, thank you for having me. And that's all for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond for their help on the program. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to hear my conversation with Congressman David Schweikert or listen back to my interview with Karina Bland about the winter holidays or one of our previous programs, please go online to kjzz.org later this afternoon. Or you can download the free KJZZ app to your smartphone. You can also follow us on Twitter at KJZZ Here and Now. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldson. Hope you have a great rest of the day. It's 12 o'clock.